Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, November 11th, we are studying Joshua chapter 24, verses 16 to 33. The book of Joshua comes to an end as the people of Israel promise to be faithful to the Lord alone before Joshua dies at the end of his years of service to Israel. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jason Casper. Pastor Casper serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me, Pastor Apple. So we get started today, Pastor Casper. Let's talk context. You have the last part of Joshua 24, so any of the book is wide open that yeah. you'd like to talk about. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, it's it's the whole, yeah, this is the the capstone to the whole book, right? So we ought to we ought to be talking about what Joshua has been. Joshua has has been uh, it's even expressed this way early on in Joshua. He's he's effectively the new Moses. He's the next guy who is leading Israel coming across the the Jordan River into the land. There's even a there's even a water crossing like the Red Sea where the Jordan River piles up and the people cross over on not exactly dry ground quite like the Red Sea but very similar in many ways to the Red Sea crossing. Just as miraculous a thing when in the spring when the waters flood, it all gets stacked up uphill from us and we don't get run over by the flood waters. So that is an interesting and unique passage and thing that's going on here that's replicating a little bit of the Moses stuff. Joshua, faithful leader, bringing the people across. The people come over, and what do we do? We're supposed to be keeping God's laws, building all the right worship places and all the right worship ways. Uh, we're given to worship the Lord in specific ways and in specific places, and we're going to see that the Canaanites are doing all the wrong stuff in all the wrong places. And this is why the conquest of Canaan is happening. There's all sorts of great wickedness among the Canaanite people, and that's got to stop. And that can't, not only does it need to stop, but it also can't be infecting the people of Israel and corrupting them, which is the whole reason for this conquest and why we're going. We're going to see the interaction between, we have seen rather, this we're not talking as if we haven't seen this yet, we have seen how the Lord sends forth his angel ahead of the people and does the successive work of his conquest as he commands. They are successful when God tells them to go. When he doesn't tell them to go, it doesn't work so good. So we have this juxtaposition of, of, uh, of Jericho versus Ai and the way that, that those battles play out. There's a listing of the victories that all go through. Some of the, some of the Canaanites do indeed go along with Israel and relent from their sin and turn away. Gibeonites specifically among them, um, so there's lots of there's lots of shifting within the land of Canaan. There are there are those who are wicked, and those are those there are those who turn from their wickedness along the way. This is all good stuff for the people of Israel. <laughs> so all of this is going on. We're now getting to the point where the land has been divided. We're finally going to hand everything over. Joshua is getting ready to die. He's aware that his his time is coming to an end. He's going to hand off everything to the people. There's been this speech. This great speech about faithfulness to the Lord and to His Torah, and how you will just decide today whether you will follow the house's Lord, the Lord's, the Lord's word or not. When 
whether your house will do this or not. And now we're going to hear a response from the people, <laughs> which really, in the history books of the, of the Old Testament, this is not so much of an end as it is a pivot into the next thing. That's here, right. Here we're going to just jump directly into Judges and what happens there. So that's kind of where we are. We're at the hinge. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So many of these, uh, particularly these several first books of the Old Testament, they end in a rather unsatisfying way if you're looking for the, the book to end on a, on a note that, okay, I'm, I'm finished. Well, every time you, you get to the end of one of these books, the same was true in Deuteronomy as it will be in Joshua, you have to keep reading because there's more coming. And it's, it's like the Old Testament is going toward something or someone, as, as we will see. That's and, interesting. I wonder what that could be. I know, I know, I know. It's interesting. You, you talked about Joshua as the new Moses. And, and certainly that was a theme that came through very strongly at the beginning of the book, that Joshua is following in the footsteps of Moses. You have that text in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says that there will be a prophet like him from among the brothers who will arise. And you see Joshua start to fulfill that in ways that sometimes are, are more spectacular than things that happened to Moses, and sometimes perhaps a little bit less. And I think, I think here at the end of the book, while you certainly see the parallels to Moses' life again, you do you do see at the same time that Joshua is not the final fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, that, that there's a few details here, and, and most specifically in my mind, Joshua's age, not quite equaling that of Moses, mm-hmm. that, that you're, you're thinking, well, Joshua, he, he did a nice job. He was faithful in following Moses, but it doesn't seem that he's the guy that Deuteronomy 18 was talking about. And, and, and once again, we see how the Old Testament leads us leaves us wanting more, uh, pointing toward the final fulfillment, who is, of course, Jesus Christ. Spoiler alert, we know. We know Matthew 1.1 is coming where Jesus where Jesus comes. All that is is pointing us toward Jesus. So, yeah, any any more on, on Joshua 24 or the, the preceding context before we get started with the text? Well, that, that uh, I, I'm just reminded of, uh, of Genesis chapter 3 mm. that, that, uh, and Genesis 4, where we're kind of always in the Old Testament thinking, oh, cool, this is the fulfillment. Here we are. When when Eve is the first one to say it, I have I have born a man. Here we go. This is the seed of the woman that's going to conquer the serpent right. or, or maybe kill his brother. Maybe right. we're not really right. sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and in each case, it's not quite there. This is there is something coming, but it's not this one. There there is a prophet greater than me coming behind and and it isn't it clearly is not this guy. It's got to be a different one. There has to be something else coming. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So as you said, Joshua has just finished a very rousing speech in which he has gathered the tribes of Israel together. He has reminded them of their history and particularly the Lord's history of faithfulness to them. And he's put before them this this choice. He says, fear the Lord, put away the gods that your fathers had served, choose who you're going to serve, whether those idols or the Lord, and and very famously in in Joshua, he has declared, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're picking up right there as the people respond to Joshua in chapter 24, verse 16. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. 
And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. I'll pause there. That takes us through verse 28 of the text. So Pastor Casper, the people respond to Joshua's charge. Who are you going to serve? I'm going to serve the Lord. They say, we want to serve the Lord too. How could we serve other gods? Uh, what's here in the, the people's initial response to Joshua's charge to them? Well, they're, they're very, very serious about this. We are absolutely going to serve the Lord. They're, they're singing the hymn, which uh, the, was one of the few that actually goes along with Joshua. From God can nothing move me. He, I won't, he will not step aside, but gently will repute, reprove me and be my constant guide. He stretches out his hand in evening and in morning, my life with grace adorning where'er, wherever I may stand. Right? There is this certainty. I am, we are absolutely going to serve the Lord. There is no wavering. There is no doubt in our minds. And it's going to shift real quickly when Joshua speaks to them. And I love how this, this is so prevalent in the Old Testament. There is this speaking to a people who are called to be faithful. They respond in faithfulness. And yet there is a constant, persistent existence of something that is entirely unfaithful. Hmm. Put away the gods you are serving. Wait, we're not supposed to be serving other gods. Put away and abandon the gods that your fathers served, who were not supposed to be serving other gods. When we're when we're dealing with even when we're dealing with Abraham and the faithfulness there, and, and his wives who have their household gods stored away in the tents, there is this consistent unfaithfulness in the people mm-hmm. of Israel in the face of a faithful God who is constantly restoring, constantly renewing, constantly reapplying His law to them and saying, "Okay, let's try this again. Here we go." You don't do these things, right? Let's not do that this time. So, but they they do respond faithfully here, and and not to. I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but because Joshua, as as you pointed out, we'll talk about this in a second. Joshua does say, "Yeah, you're not going to do that. You're not going to be able to do that." But at the same time, the faithful response that they give here, this is what they should say. Absolutely, you know, and I think that's that's worth saying and giving. You take this for, I mean, don't take this too far, but giving credit where credit is due to recognize the faithfulness there in Israel when it when it does show up. And the book of Joshua, though certainly not perfect in this regard, there there are more of those brief shining moments of faithfulness in Joshua than in other Old Testament books. And the fact that they respond faithfully here, that they they say amen to what Joshua has said amen to, and they say, yes, this is what we want for the reasons you've said— this is a this is a good thing, and it is a something I think for Christians to imitate. That when that moment comes, are you going to choose to serve the Lord or an idol? Well, of course we're going to serve the Lord. Now, the Joshua is going to keep their feet on the ground in that, but they give the right answer, and I think that's worth worth pointing out. Well, sure, and they're not and they're not lying. Yeah. They they are absolutely certain we will 
hold to what you have said. We will be faithful to the Lord. We will abandon the gods of the Canaanite people and the gods of our fathers. We will be true to the Lord and only to him and nothing else. Hmm. That's there, there, there isn't, it's not like they're reserving in the back of their mind, the idea that maybe they're going to go check out the Asherah poles later They're They intend to be faithful to God. That is their, their mm-hmm. sure certain statement. Yeah. And they have every reason to do so. And this is the, the wonderful thing about their answer is that it's, it's not only yes, Joshua, we're going to do, as you said, we will serve the Lord, but they give the reasons. And in verses 17 and following, The Lord our God is the one who brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. The Lord is the one who did the great signs. The one is the Lord who the Lord is the one who preserved us as we wandered in the wilderness. And he's the one who's, you know, brought us into this land among all the peoples. The Lord drove them all out. So they it's not just a it's not a blind faith that just ignores the Lord or who they are, but in fact recognizes that the Lord is their savior and they have every reason to follow him. Yeah, and it has that same language as what we've heard in the Pentateuch as well. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm, the Lord delivered us out of bondage in Egypt into the wilderness, which was not where he intended for us to be permanently, but rather we dwelled with him there, and then he delivered us into the land, and now coming into the people and in, in, in speaking with Joshua, we are being delivered from here into the entirety of the ownership of, and conquest of this land. We've finally been given what was promised to Abraham and to our fathers. Yeah. This is for us. This, this is the land for us to, to have and to receive. The Lord has given it to us, and he's promised it all along, and he's provided for us to have it. Even, even uh, he, well, we'll get to the bones of, of Joseph after a little while, but there's, there's even that promise way back in the time of Joseph who sees and knows the Lord is going to bring you out of here and take you back to that land. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things we've seen throughout the book of Joshua is the, the very detailed fulfillment of the Lord's promises made all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about receiving this land. And these people are actually getting to see that fulfillment with their eyes. And that, I mean, just the effect of that shouldn't shouldn't be understated. This is, this is a huge thing. They've been hearing about these promises, presumably their whole lives, and now they're seeing it. Now they're actually receiving it. And although we started, you know, by saying, and we will continue to see, the fact that this isn't the end of the story, for these people, there is a a bit of a, I don't know what the right. There's a bit of a, a like this, this is it. This is yeah. kind of there's a conclusive moment here. Yeah, this, this is the actual. This isn't the actual fulfillment, but for them, it seems like it is. Right, right. And this is, I mean, this is a moment they've been waiting for, not just in their own lives, but generations of Israelites have been waiting for this. And now to have it in their hands, we are in the land. This is a moment in which, I mean, of course they're going to say this. At least, you know, they they make the ob- what seems like to us the obvious answer, yes, we will serve the Lord. And it's, I mean, it's a beautiful thing to see. It is. It absolutely is. And and we we also have to go keep in mind this generationally. There may there may be some among this crowd who didn't remember the wilderness firsthand. Right. But some of these folks do. Some of these folks were among the folks crossing the river into the promised land with Joshua and and actually running the armies of conquest. So these folks have a very clear understanding of where they came from and how distinctively unique and different this is to be here, to be where we are right now. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, we don't want to minimize this moment. And when we, 
I suppose when we have those moments in our own faith still today, we don't want to minimize them, and we should rejoice in them when we see the fulfillment of God's promises to us. So when we, you know, when when the child is baptized, this is a moment to rejoice. When we when we receive the body and blood of the Lord at the Lord's table, a moment to rejoice. When we when we recognize the Lord's answer to a prayer. Sometimes I think we sometimes we use the phrase like that's a mountaintop experience or something like that, yeah. you know. And that's that's not a bad thing to have that moment where yes, I can see very obviously the Lord has kept His promise, and and my faith I, I'll use the word feels strong at the moment. Like that's okay. That's a moment to rejoice and to to say with Joshua and with Israel, yeah, we're going to serve the Lord. Let's do it. I mean, the the enthusiasm, it's good. It's good to have that enthusiasm. Well, we pray for that every day. We pray that the Lord would deliver us from evil, and he does. Yeah. And and sometimes we see it, and sometimes we don't. And sometimes we notice it, and sometimes we don't. And the times that we do see it, the times we do notice it, we absolutely should recognize and rejoice in the fact that we've yeah. been delivered from evil of our flesh, evil of our world, evil of, of the dangers of the things around us. There There is plenty of stuff that the Lord is constantly preserving us from, and we ought to recognize and be happy about that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and, to, and hopefully those moments when it's very obvious, as it is in Joshua 24, help us to see those moments when it maybe is less obvious, or when we don't see it at all, that we still recognize the faithfulness of the Lord such that we can have, as the apostles talk about in the New Testament, we can still have joy in our suffering. It may not be quite the same enthusiasm outwardly as you see from the people of Israel here, but recognizing those moments when they're very obvious hopefully strengthens our faith so when it's less obvious or we don't see it at all, we still have that joy and endurance in the face of suffering to remain faithful to the Lord even at those darker, more difficult moments. Yeah. And that's and that's that's the language we find in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. It talks that way when when there are, when there is lament and there is crying out. It speaks of the joy and the and the rejoicing and, and the and the promise fulfillment that we have seen, and the expectation that it's still going to happen. That this yeah. may not be the moment when it is happening, but there are still times coming when 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 deliverance and restoration are still coming to us. Yeah, the, the, I, I want to mention too. You you brought up the hymn "From God Can Nothing Move Me." Yeah, right. What number is that in Lutheran Service Book? Uh, that would be uh, seven thirteen. Seven hundred thirteen in Lutheran Service Book. The hymn number eight hundred sixty two in Lutheran Service Book. Oh, bless the house. Also makes reference to Joshua twenty four, particularly the last stanza. Oh. the The first four stanzas of that hymn, you know, speak of the blessed house where. Where, where Jesus is taught, where the parents and children together are learning the faith. And then in the, the fifth stanza of that hymn, it's almost a direct quote from what Joshua says in the previous text and what the people here echo in these verses. Then here will I and mine today a solemn promise make and say, though all the world forsake his word, I and my house will serve the Lord. So there's, there's an opportunity for us still in our own hymnody to echo the words of Joshua, the words of the people of Israel, and to make that same declaration. This is particularly in the context of the Christian home, that when parents and children are sharing the faith together, the the parents are teaching the faith to their children at home, and the children are are rejoicing to learn the catechism and the word of God, that, that we too would join in this refrain from the people of God, I and my house will serve the Lord. And to to mean it, to be faithful in it, uh, even as we know, as, as we'll see from Joshua, well, 
hold on a second. <laughs> There's still that sinful nature to deal with. Any more thoughts on these these first couple of verses here with the people's response? Sure. Well, I was just reminded that it, we have at least two wedding gifts that are crosses with that text from sure. Joshua on there, Joshua 24-15. And I'm sure every Christian couple ever getting married has received at least one of those, which which hangs or sits in the house somewhere. That's right, and and rightly so, rightly so. Sometimes we we chuckle a little bit about the wall hangings and scripture passages that are, are sometimes pulled out of context for them, but but rightly that, that so. That one's actually suitable. That, yes, that one's a good thing to have in your house, and it is suitable to have hanging in your very house. much so, very much so. A, a constant reminder of of who we are as the Lord's people, because of who He is and what He's done for us, and that's where you know hearing hearing that verse, not only what Joshua said, but what the people said, in the context of what the Lord has done, makes that a verse more than just, this is my own willpower, but it actually comes as a gift. God has done this for me, and so what's my response? He's my God. He's already shown himself to be my God. Why would I want to be anything other than his people? And that's the great, that's the greatness of what we find in the Old Testament. There is so much horrible stuff happening, and it's always God restoring his people. It's always God being faithful, restoring them to faithfulness. And then what do they say? Of course, may it never be that we will fall away. That's right. That's right. And, and that's, so <laughs> that's the voice of faith speaking out loud what it has been given. Yes, yes. And I think, you know, in the people of Israel, we see we see a, a mirror of our own lives that, you know, we have those moments where, of course, we're going to follow the Lord. And then we have those moments like Israel where we forget who he is, what he's done for us, and, and we fall away. And and Joshua keeps them grounded in that reality. So the, the people have just made this wonderful declaration. We also will serve, serve the Lord for he is our God. And Joshua says to the people, you can't do that. <laughs> you're, you're not able to serve the Lord. And he gives reasons. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. What, what's Joshua doing here? Why doesn't he kind of cheer him on? Why, why does he give him this much more tempered response? Well, among other things, he's, take, he's turning them directly back to the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. He starts off with that same language. I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity. And, and, and this, this repetition of that same kind of language should bring to mind for these folks, yeah, those are the things we are supposed to be doing, and mm-hmm. and we're, we're not we're not as faithful as we claim to be. The Lord makes us faithful, and you know, oh Lord, increase our faith. Sure. We're not going to be there, and and he's he is reminding them that you aren't as faithful as you think you are. You're you haven't been, and and I hope that you will be. And this is sort of. This is like that last will and testament. What, what does the old man say as he's dying on his deathbed? Be faithful to the Lord. We will. Yeah, you haven't been, though. And, and, and here are the ways you haven't been. You, you have not done what you said you would do. Even in the conquest of the land, we had some pretty catastrophic <laughs> failures during all this mm-hmm. conquest. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of those moments in Joshua's life where I think you do see echoes of Moses. Toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, on, on more than one occasion, tells the people of Israel in a very prophetic way what's coming. You know, the people of Israel there at the end of Deuteronomy have been faithfully listening to Moses and and have a similar attitude, I think, as to what the people have here in Joshua 24. But Moses is pretty honest with them and, and even speaks prophetically about, you will fall away, you will abandon the Lord, you'll actually even go into exile. And, and to keep them, I think, grounded in the reality, as, as you were saying, that all of this comes to them as gift. It's not about their willpower, just as... The whole conquest of the land in the early part of Joshua wasn't about their military prowess, but it was about listening to the Lord's word. So here at the end, their faithfulness depends not on themselves, but it depends on the Lord. And they they need to, 
I mean, you mentioned the Ten Commandments. They need to take a, a lesson from that history, not only that enduring word of God in the Ten Commandments, but also, for example, the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32, right there after the Lord has given his covenant, he's given instructions for how to build the tabernacle. Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days, and what are the people at the bottom doing? Worshiping an, an idol, building an idol. And and there needs to be that honest recognition from the people of God that even as they promise their faithfulness, the sinful flesh still clings to them, and they need the Lord's help to keep that old Adam drowned in the waters of baptism. And apart from the Lord's constant work through his word, they don't have a shot at it. Yeah, and it's well, it's dwelling in the house of the Lord. That, that really is, is, is key to this whole thing. It's being centered in the law of God, which for the Old Testament folks, this is not just the law, the Ten Commandments, but all of the writings of the Pentateuch, all the scriptures that are that are given to us, this is God's word for us. We are to be studying this, to be reading it, writing the law on our hearts and writing it on the doorposts of our houses and all that sort of stuff, constantly surrounded with and reminded that God's word is for us and dwelling in his house, being in the tabernacle, being part of the sacrificial work of the church, mm-hmm. because that's God's work for us too. Yeah. He is restoring his people. He is bringing salvation. He is bringing restoration to his people and, and bringing us back into this this fullness of faith constantly being refreshed and renewed here. This is the place where the promise is delivered. And, yeah. the, and the tendency for Old Testament Jews and New Testament Christians is to say, well, I've had my fill. I, I'm okay for a while. I'm going to wander off and do other things that are more important than being in the house of the Lord because I'm a, I'm a good Christian. And in my heart, well, yeah, Joshua's telling us not to think that way. That's right. I think, you know, Joshua, this, this section here reminds me a little bit of the parable of the sower. And I believe it's the second soil that Jesus describes where the seed is sown and it grows up quickly right away, but then it withers because there's no root. And it, it seems that Joshua is, is trying to guard against that type of by reception the, by the of the cares word. cares of this life. It is choked out by the cares of this life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what, you know, when you think about the people of Israel at this moment, they've got all the cares of this life taken care of. As we were saying at the very beginning, they are receiving the promise long foretold They've got the land. They're going to be eating from the vineyards and the fields that they didn't plant and dwelling in the houses that they didn't build. They've got it all. And that's when the danger to that growing plant is is at a, a very great spot. And I mean, it's like Joshua knows that, and he's trying to guard against the people, just like Moses was in Deuteronomy, from taking comfort and uh, seeing as an idol the land and all the prosperity and recognize, no, the Lord alone is God. Don't don't let this good enthusiasm overwhelm you so that you forget the temptations that are there that would lead you away from faith. Well, and we're at the doorstep of complacency. We're at the doorstep of pride. We, we were the ones who conquered the land, yeah. and this land is so fruitful, this land that flows with milk and honey. This is, this is our sustenance. We don't need anything else. Well, no, you need the Lord who provided this to you. Yeah, you didn't. You didn't conquer the land because of your own might. You conquered the land because the angel of the Lord preceded you in battle. That that was how you managed to conquer this land, that, and it was handed over to you and delivered into your hand so that you would tend it and and maintain it and keep it, and and also tend to the faith and the house of God and your children in the faith, as the head of the household should do in a simple way. That's right. So so keep keep the Lord first here. Don't don't get overwhelmed in your enthusiasm. Don't let your you know earthly 
earthly goods that you have, don't let them overtake you. Rather, keep the Lord first. Remember who he is. He's a holy God, a jealous God. Don't make just vain promises to him, but understand what you're confessing and what you're receiving here in this gift. We're going to keep looking at Joshua 24. On the other side of the break, you're listening to Sharper Iron. We're talking to Pastor Jason Casper this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, November 11th. We're studying Joshua chapter 24, verses 16 to 33 with Pastor Jason Casper. He serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, prior to the break, we were looking at this first section. Joshua has responded to the people's enthusiasm saying, you're not able to serve the Lord. Hold on a second. Remember who the Lord is and don't make promises that you don't intend to keep. The people continue their conversation with Joshua in verse 21. We will serve the Lord. Joshua says, then you are witnesses against yourselves. What, what, and that language of witnesses continues. They agree to it. We are witnesses. What's, what's being said here? You're, you're going to eat your words. That's exactly what's being said. You have clearly said you will serve the Lord, and I'm, I'm certain you can't. And you're repeating, no, no, we're going to do it. We can, we will, we shall. Okay, you will be witnesses against yourselves. You have said this, your promise, your pledge, your confirmation vow, I will suffer all rather than death, even death, rather than fall away from this faith. That is a witness against you as a Christian. So too these, these Jews here in, in Israel, they are speaking a f- clear statement of faith, public proclamation of the faith, and they're not going to be able to keep it. They're not going to keep up, and their words will come back to bite them. And it isn't, it isn't even so much of a, of a thing. I don't think that their words are individually going to come harshly at them. I think that it's, it's this internal conviction that I said this, and as I'm falling away, I know what I'm doing. This is a, a rooster crowing moment where you just have that that drop inside your stomach and oh yeah I did say that. Yeah, well I think that that idea of being a witness against themselves and and what you brought out about when when it's happening the point is you recognize it and and you realize what you're doing and what you said previously and the way that does stand against you in order that you would be brought to repentance. And and this again reminds me of of the end of the book of Deuteronomy where Moses teaches them that song in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy that is intended to be a witness against them. And there's there's numerous witnesses there at the end of Deuteronomy against the people as as a way to like when they hear this song or when they even sing it themselves 
and they're unfaithful, they're supposed to have that moment like, oh, this is a witness against me. And, and like you're saying here, their words are intended to be a witness that later down the road, when they're being unfaithful, they are supposed to remember, or hopefully one of the people around them says, hey, remember what you said there in Joshua chapter 24? Oh, yeah. And I, I think what you said about confirmation vows is a perfect parallel today. Like, remember what you said when you were confirmed? Remember remember those words when you promised to be faithful even to death? Oh, yeah. And and, and the right use of it, or the, the Lord's intended use of it then would be to call to repentance and that to turn us from our sin that's right that's right and i think i mean what you you referenced the the account of peter there with the rooster crowing i think that's that's what you at least start to see with peter mm-hmm. when the rooster crows as the witness he be he he's brought to repentance you know at that moment well and and that's the the peter moment and actually the judas moment are useful things to keep in mind here because those are the opposite reactions which are both sorrow right sorrow doesn't accomplish anything you can be you can be incredibly sorry for your sin, but if you if you don't turn to Christ in repentance away from sin, it it will have you. Right, right. And then in the case of Judas, the sorrow leads to despair. Yeah. Whereas in in the case of Peter, the sorrow, and again only by the grace of God, but the sorrow by the grace of God leads leads Peter toward Christ, back to Christ. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a very different response. It's it's, it's an, a different kind of internal motivation, and we we want to do this. We pray this too. We pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others, yeah. which is another one of those words that are going to stand against us and does on a regular basis. That's right. That's right. I mean, there's a number of things we could talk about here with, with things standing as witnesses against us. The 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 size of our buildings sometimes <laughs> stands as a witness against us. You and I were talking about this recently, that, that the buildings we have, sometimes we are not filling them anymore. And that, that size of that building stands as a witness against us and not necessarily against us individually in the sense of unfaithfulness, but the sense of a witness against us collectively of how, you know, the world that we live in is falling farther and farther away from the Lord and his word. And when we see a, an empty building that, that stands as a witness again, and now as Christians, hopefully we hear that and the call to repentance, even if the world around us doesn't. Yeah, I would. And, and I think we do. And that's, I think so. that, that really is the thing. We, we hear that and, and we, we ache. When we, yes. when we walk into the, to a room that used to have two times the number of human beings in it that it has right now, it causes us to, to stumble a little bit and suffer knowing yeah. that there are ears that are not hearing, there are hearts that are not, that are not being, uh, being turned into flesh from stone and, and brought into the fear and love of God. Yeah. And that's, that's uncomfortable for us to know. Yeah, yeah, but that that ache, that repentance, is the proper response for us to to return to the Lord our God, who is gracious and merciful to us. So, we are witnesses. They they willingly accept that themselves. It's in their own lips. And Joshua then, I mean, he takes it as a moment to to put it to them again. Verse twenty three: Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. I mean, you you talked about this. There are these little statues among them, even at this point. Get rid of them, Joshua says. And where, the people and say, Where did these we will. come from? <laughs> well, according to Joshua, they were the gods your father served. And you kind of wonder, like, did they did they hold on to these for the sake of nostalgia or or what? I mean, we you know, I think sometimes we we forget that the the time in Egypt, while it, I mean the slavery was bad, but the theological conditions, the, the religious to God was far worse. That's right. There was idolatry happening there among the people of Israel and Egypt, and it 
to get rid of that, to root out all that idolatry, to use the language of Deuteronomy, to purge the evil from among you, sometimes takes time. And so, yeah, the, apparently there are these foreign gods among them, and Joshua says, get rid of them. Don't don't have anything to do with them. And they, for their part, again, they agree at the moment. They do. Well, and, and to, to pivot a little bit on that foreign gods thing, what, what have we found? We're in a new land. We're in a new con- land of conquest. We're going to find other cool, new, attractive sure. gods. There are lots of other idols here that are not the Egyptian idols. Those are the old kind. Those are the those are passe. Now we have these new ones that are shiny and interesting. Yeah, that's true, and that's true. So the the fact that the foreign gods are among them may not be about the statues that they currently possess that they've held on to, though it's not hard to imagine at least some Israelites having them, but could be a lot more about the temptation that comes from now you're in the promised land, and there are these statues that are going to be around you. Watch out for them, get rid of them, thinking forward to knowing that the conquest is not complete at this point, that hopefully, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we get to the end, but the the hopeful, the full conquest of the land and the driving out of these nations, that's there's a reference to that here as well, I think. Yeah, good point. Yeah, and it's it's driving out, and it's it's a, it's a literal driving out, and also a figurative driving out. That that the driving out is the driving out of unbelief. Yes, the driving out is the driving out of of, of idolatry. That's the right. People don't necessarily have to leave the land. The people, as we find with the Gibeonites, the people can be folded into Israel, but this unbelief stuff that's got to go. That's all got to leave. And and as you were talking about the vineyards we didn't plant and the houses we didn't build, well, there are also little idle corners in these houses and little spots at the top of the hill in the vineyard where we yeah. used to do the things we did there. That's right. Yeah, so put those things away from among you. Get rid of them. Incline your heart to serve the Lord. The people again respond, we will. Verse 24, the Lord our God, we will serve. His voice we will obey. Joshua then makes a covenant with the people. He puts in place statutes and rules. He writes down words in the book of the law of God. It's a, it's a small point, but I always think it's important to, to note when there is literal writing recorded in the Old Testament. So we've, we've seen Moses write. Now we see Joshua writing yet again. He writes down these words. So already, and this is what, sometime in the 1300s B.C., there's writing. The word of God is being written down. Whether this is is referring to the book of Joshua itself or something else, perhaps that's not as plain, but Joshua does write down for them these words so they'll remember them. I kind of like to think about this as almost biblical commentary. Sure, that, okay. That, that Joshua is he's writing in the law of Moses. He's actually giving them something, hey, by the way, this means you. When yeah. it says murder here, it means hatred. That also applies to you and the way you interact with your brother, not just in terms of preserving his life, but in terms of preserving his health and his well-being also. Yeah. I bet you, I, I think that it's we're, we're right in thinking of it that way, okay. that he is teaching the law and expanding on it and showing them how, how it all applies to them in their life, in addition probably to writing other stuff too. Sure. Okay, so Joshua's being a faithful preacher and commentator on Moses here. And, and then he, he gets a rock. He gets a big stone and sets that up as a witness as well. Uh, talk about this stone that serves as a witness. Well, as Pastor Beck would say, we should not take it for granted. Oh, that's very good. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's horrible. Yeah, that's wonderful dad humor for all you fathers out there. <laughs> that's right. So this stone, what a, what a cool thing this is. It's such an unusual image and, and th- that he would be placing the stone in the area of the temple between a couple of trees. This stone is a witness. What you have said, it's going to speak against you. And, and we have to kind of hear the words of Luke here, Luke chapter 19, 40. If you were silent, if you were silent even the stones will speak. Mm. And, and, uh, and Psalm 19 as well, that the heavens declare the glories of God, that, that even the mountains and the brooks and the streams, everything speaks of the glory of God, even if you don't. Yeah. 
everything around you does. And everything around you, while speaking of the glory of God, is actually speaking against you and your unbelief and your unfaithfulness. So this stone is is a remembrance to you too. I think that's kind of a that's kind of a cool thing also because like that that memory cue we have, we've made this our words are going to be a witness against us. And then what do we hear? We we hear our own words and our eyes see that stone and now that's a witness against us too. That's this right. is a little bit this is a little bit like the the serpent on a pole in the wilderness. If sure. you have your eyes happen across it, oh, you should remember the thing you said in the presence of that rock. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that's quite a quite the way that Joshua puts it. It, the rock, the stone, has heard all the words of the Lord, such that, as you said, according to the words of Jesus, if if these are silent, then the rocks will cry out, and that is that is a witness against those who would fail to make the good confession that is made here. That if if you won't, this rock heard what you said, and it will stand as a witness against you. Again, I mean, thinking today, like going past a church steeple or seeing the church steeple on the horizon, that that stands as a witness. Oh, Oh yeah, what what does that what does that remind me of? And that witness against us or for us, right? Again, depending on, on whether where we find ourselves, but here Joshua warning the people, if you forget what you've said, if you fail to keep making this confession, here is this stone, and as you said, not just a, a, a audible reminder, but now a visual reminder, another witness for the purpose of, of bringing people back to repentance and faith. Yeah. Well, and, and think about it this way. So rural back roads in Texas, where we, where we are right now, they, the, the thing you would, you would see driving through the countryside, you'll see the husk of an old building. And some of those are, are old churches, and you can tell. Yeah. It is, and it is. It's a visual witness of a thing that used to happen there. Now, it's not necessarily condemning the people who were there. Right. We don't know the situation there, but there is certainly a chance on some of these occasions that this was a faithful church, which has fallen away and fallen into disuse. It's completely abandoned. It's in disrepair, and it's because of unfaithfulness that it's there. And that building is absolutely like this stone, standing as a visual reminder of your your pledge to faithfulness, yeah. which you didn't do. Yeah. Uh, an abandoned cemetery nearby that isn't kept up is the same sort of the same sort of physical remaining witness and, and, and image of the thing that was there. Yeah. So Joshua has heard the people's good confession. He has held them to it as a witness against themselves. This stone now serves as a witness. Now they all go home. And again, you, you have this element of, of conclusion here. This is the Lord. He has been faithful to his promise. He's given the land. The people go dwell in it. They have promised to be faithful. And boy, if, if it ended right there, it's like, and, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> and you, this, is, this is where we expect the book to end, right? This, you've gone to your inheritance. You've all, every, each of the 12 tribes and the, and the two half tribes, Ephraim Manasseh, everybody's got their, their allotment of land. Everybody goes to where they're supposed to be. This is yours. Dwell here, live here, and we end ever, happily ever after. But there's more because there is, there is a greater rest than what Joshua gives. And so the account of the Old Testament continues with these final verses of Joshua 24. We're picking up again at verse 29 now. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought for the, from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph." And Eleazar the son of Aaron died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. 
And that's the end of the book of Joshua that takes us through Joshua 24, verse 33. So as, as many of the books of the Old Testament end, they end with people dying. Here, particularly Joshua, Eliezer as well, but Joshua, I think, uh, serves as the focus. So talk a little bit about what we find out at, about Joshua at his death. Yeah, so Joshua the orphan here is Joshua, son of Nun. There's another orphan. dad joke for all you fans. Have, have to throw those things in there. 110 years old. I think, how old was Moses? 130? 120. 120. 120. Yeah. So he's, he's less than Moses. Yeah. And this, and this is, this is, we were, we, we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about this the other day, the, the interaction between Moses and Joshua, the, the idea that Joshua is supposed to kind of be a better Moses, a new Moses. And in some ways he is, in some ways he's not. This is an example specifically at the end. He's not better than. Hmm. And that's kind of that's the image of what is what is coming. We're we're expecting things to be coming up that are that are um, uh, that are that are always the fulfillment of the promise, and none of them quite are. And Joshua is not. Also, uh, there's also a significant marker of time here. As Joshua dies and Eliezer dies, Joshua is the is the one successing behind Moses. Eliezer behind Aaron. And so these two men die. Now we are clearly entering a new generation of Israel. There's new leadership that should be coming up and, and taking, the, taking the charge and, and, and directing the people to good and useful and, and faithful things, mm-hmm. which may not be the case. Well, well yeah, we'll that's, have to wait and see on that. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think, I mean, in these verses, particularly with Joshua and Eliezer, the death of both of these men, Joshua was the successor of Moses, Eliezer the successor of Aaron. Now that both of those have died, this is a you're entering into a new era of Israel's history. You've you've left slavery behind, you've left the wilderness behind, and you're settled in the promised land. And so here's the new generation that has all this word of the Lord, the books of Moses, now commented faithfully by Joshua. What are you going to do with it? And that kind of becomes the the question that the rest of the Old Testament is going to answer. And as as we've already alluded to several times, it doesn't always go so well for the people of Israel. But I I do think still that the book of Joshua ends mostly on a, on a fairly hopeful note. That, it does. Well, there's there's great fulfillment of promise. Yes. I mean this 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 bones of Joseph stuff is awesome. Okay. How, how far back does that go? Yeah. So so with with Joseph, it, it is striking that Joseph's bones make their appearance here yet again. It, Joseph actually also lived to 110 years old. We find out in Genesis 50, the same age Joshua lived. And again, I, I just to echo what you said. I think the 110, in addition to the echo of Joseph and and perhaps a, an echo of of some Egyptian thought that I've I've heard that the 110 is a, a, a the right age to die for Egyptians. So like that's a perfect perfect age or something like that. Moses, of course, exceeds it. Joshua doesn't. Joshua only gets to 110. For as faithful as he's been, he hasn't quite been that prophet like Moses, the one who fulfills Deuteronomy 18 in the in the fullness. But we get this note about the bones of Joseph, and it's been a while since we've heard about Joseph or his bones. So tell us a little bit about this this note that we get in Joshua 24 about his bones. Yeah, the, the note about Joshua's bones is, is fulfillment of promise. There, there was a, a really a, a prophetic statement by Joshua. Joseph. In, Joseph saying, okay. I'm getting my J's backwards. Goodness. <laughs> by Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, when he tells, he tells the people that, when, that you need to gather my bones, don't leave me here in Egypt. The Lord will deliver you into the promised land. Take me there and lay me to rest with my fathers. And they do. And when it pops up again in Exodus that Moses brings the bones of, of Joseph with him. That's the correct J, right, Joseph? Yes. You got it. Okay. They were going to bring him along, and clearly we've had him the entire time, which mm-hmm. is kind of a peculiar thing to imagine, although I guess in our day and age it's not so strange. Folks do cremation an awful lot now, and mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily go and stay in the ground all the time. Mm-hmm. But dragging around the bones, the remains of the dead, 
for a good long time is kind of a peculiar thing. And here, yeah. here the people of Israel have been bringing along the bones of Joseph. And where do they put him to rest? They put him to rest in the right spot, exactly where he belongs, in the land that was bought for those pieces of money. This is the tomb that was prepared for you. This is the plot on the family farm out near the church where your great-great-great-grandparents lived. This was their funeral plot that was already for you. There's a stone with your name on it already, and that's been waiting for you the whole time. Yeah. Well, and so like you said, this is this seems like a strange thing. Why not just bury him there in Egypt? Well, the, you have to go back to the end of the book of Genesis to understand that. When Jacob dies in Egypt, he is very explicit. You don't bury me in Egypt. You bury me in, in this same spot that Joseph is being buried at this, this moment. Well, well, why? Why does it matter where the patriarchs are buried? It goes to the promise given to Abraham that this is the place that God is giving you. You don't just get buried anywhere, but you, you're you buried in the place of promise. And, and this is when I think about the burial of the patriarchs, I think it's meant to point us to the resurrection. You, you need to be buried in the place of God's promise because God is the one who's going to to raise you from the grave. And, and as, I mean, as, as awesome as it is to see the, you know, the faithfulness of the people of God and doing what Joseph has given them to do. And the, when you trace the, the journey of the bones from Genesis 50 to Exodus 13 to now to Joshua 24, he's still dead and buried at this point. Something more is coming. And, he's, and I'm still waiting the resurrection. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think that's why, that's why the burial of his bones is so important in the promised land because that's the place that God has attached his promise to. The patriarchs trusted that promise. They're looking for, for something better. And, and that takes us to the other place that Joseph's bones are mentioned in the scriptures, which you have to fast forward a little bit to Hebrews chapter 11 to find out about the bones of Joseph. Yeah, and that's the Hebrews chapter 11, which is the which is the, the nail in the coffin of the idea that Old Testament saints are saved by their faithfulness and by their following of God's law, but we are saved by grace. Hebrews 11 really destroys that uh, that image in our minds. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, the bones of Moses were delivered to rest in the promised land. Yeah, All yeah. the folks who, who received everything by faith through Christ, through God, and that that was their deliverance, that the promise was actually for them, and though they never saw it with their own eyes, it is fulfilled for them. And that's the promise in which they died. Yeah, yeah. The verse is Hebrews eleven twenty two. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So what Joseph said about his bones in Genesis 50 was an act of faith, trusting that God would, in fact, raise him from the dead, knowing what the promise of God was, and asking that his bones be buried here in the promised land. The other thing that, that's, I think, worth mentioning about what Joseph does in Genesis 50 is not only does he say, hey, take my bones with you and bury them, but he, but he says at the end of his life that God has visited his people, or he will visit you. Verse Genesis 50:25 Joseph made the sons of Israel swear saying God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So this this act of now burying the bones I think is again a confession of faith by the people of Israel at this moment that what Joseph told them would happen has in fact come true. God has visited his people and that that includes the exodus from Egypt it includes the preservation of the people during the wilderness wanderings. It includes the conquest of the land up to this point, and then now the giving of the promised land. This is a, another note here of the the fulfillment of God's promises. That theme we've seen throughout the book of Joseph, Joshua, that nine all these days, <laughs> the 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 fulfillment of God's promises. Not one of the Lord's words has failed. And you can go all the way back to Genesis 50, even to that simple sentence that Joseph said at the end of his life, God will surely visit you. 
the burial of his bones here is another reminder God has done it. He's kept his promises. Yeah, and it's one of those cool sites we actually still have access to. That's that's hmm. one of the one of the curious pilgrimage sites that's available in uh, not actually in Israel proper. It's outside of Israel in the in the, the hinterlands there, <laughs> but that that place is a is a site of pilgrimage both for for Muslims and Christians and Jews alike. Hmm. And uh, I I think if memory you'll have to check me on this sometime, but if memory correct fills me correctly, it, the deal is that the the Muslim side is over Abraham's grave, and the the grave is is a single area. But their portion only has only only views the the grave of Abraham and the graves of of Isaac and and Joseph and the rest are all on the other side of a little partition, in the Christian side in the Jewish mm. side of this of this, mm. this site and so they mm. they all go in different sides of a building into the same area and they're really technically in the same build in the same room but they're not there for the same reason doing different things. Huh, interesting. I, that's something that I don't know anything about. <laughs> Other yeah. <laughs> that's something I don't know anything about. I've never never been to the to Israel, uh, the modern day Israel, but I it would be fantastic to go sometime. So Joseph's bones were buried in the hope of the resurrection. One one as we finish up here, just verse 31 is is the place where man, that sounds great. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So that first generation dwelling there in the promised land sounds pretty good. But the book of Judges is going to burst the bubble a little bit. Pivot point, we go directly to Judges 1 and 2, retelling the same thing. We get the death of, of Joshua again in Judges. And then we get to where, where where Judges lives. The entirety of Judges is in the land when there, in the time when there was no king in the land, the people did, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, which means they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yeah. And they fall away and they worship the, they worship foreign gods and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse through the entirety of Judges. It starts out poorly and it ends far worse than it started. Yeah, that's right. So again, as Joshua ends, even on this hopeful note, we do keep in mind this is imploring us to keep reading, keep finding out, because we haven't yet met that prophet who is like Moses, the one who will speak to whom you must listen. He is still coming, the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ. So keep reading here in the Old Testament. Pastor Casper, as we wrap up this morning and the book of Joshua, uh, give us your final thoughts. Help us to, to see Christ in this text from Joshua 24. About a minute. Joshua 24, this text concluding Joshua is, is the entirety of the Christian life. This is exactly where it is. We make profession of faith before the throne of God, promising to meet, to keep, and to maintain the Christian faith, and the Lord knows we're not going to, and tells us in advance, and then provides us with ways to turn us from our own unfaithfulness and turn us from our own wickedness back to himself, always and continually bringing us along in the Christian faith, bringing us back into faithfulness, bringing us back into his forgiveness so that we will be in his forgiveness and kept there and that we will die in the faith and that our bones will be delivered safely into a resting place where we will stay until the day of the resurrection too. This is, this is the whole Christian faith expressed just in a few verses of the tail end of Joshua. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to trust in the promises of God. This is what it means to live the Christian life, to daily drown our sins in repentance and remember our baptism, that Christ named us, called us his own, forgave our sins, and we dwell in that forgiveness, going on about our day to sin no more. Pastor Jason Casper is pastor at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas, helping us today with Joshua 24, verses 16 to 33. Pastor Casper, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me again. 
I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple. If you have any questions about the book of Joshua, comments on the series, things that you'd love to hear on Sharper Iron, if you just want to let us know who you are and where you're listening from, we would love to hear from you. Please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to get your email. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.